Making 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 contact. Making contact. <laughs> <laughs>
the patient told me that my nurse had been a little bit rough and hadn't placed the IV correctly. But the nurse is awesome. And like, I've learned to place IVs from them. Um, and so I was kind of a little bit taken back. So Jung asked the patient to clarify what was wrong with the nurse. I am here in this, you know, emergency department because I went to a restaurant and um, someone was coughing close to me. So Jung asked, okay, what type of restaurant was it? Oh, you know, Chinese food. Once she heard this, Sojung kept digging in, asking why the patient thought being at a Chinese restaurant had made her sick. The patient said, you know, I just don't really want them to be my nurse anymore. So she asked point blank, is it because the nurse is Asian? The answer was pretty familiar. I'm not racist. I just don't want to get sick. Sojung refused to change the patient's nurse. I did say that I thought that that statement was racist and that this nurse is very professional. I brought the nurse back into the room and I talked about our care plan for the day. Even if that racism is directed towards me or to my team members, at the end of the day, like, I still have an incredible privilege and position of power in the room that I'm very aware of. And I think having your doctor tell you that what you said is inappropriate or it hurts other people's feelings is powerful. These incidents were happening when the people who were supposed to be leading the conversation about COVID-19 in our country were instead saying... ...diagnosed Saturday with the Wuhan coronavirus. ...combating the Wuhan virus and protecting the American people. ...developments in our war against the Chinese virus... And do you think using the term Chinese virus, that puts Asian Americans at risk, that people no, might target that? No, 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 And so as that was happening in the national media, what I was seeing kind of on the ground level were a few cases of um, patients coming in for other complaints, like fall or abrasion, just a fancy way of saying like scrapes and bruises. But... There was more to these cases than it seemed. At the beginning of one of my afternoon shifts, what we see on the board is a patient to be seen. And I saw that there was, you know, like a 70s-year-old male. Looked like he had been scraped up. He had a big bruise to the top of his head and had a bunch of scratches on his hands and arms from falling and kind of bracing himself as he was falling. This emergency room patient was a Chinese-American elder who didn't speak much English. Sojung got him into an exam room and called up a Cantonese-language interpreter on a tablet. He said that he had fallen while he was going for a walk in Golden Gate Park. But the scrapes on his hands and arms looked a lot worse, as if he'd been dragged on the ground. And eventually, I think I clarified and asked the interpreter... I do not believe what you're saying. Please, like, tell me the circumstances of how you fell today. So the patient started over. It turns out his first story was part of the truth. He was out for a walk in the park. He had a mask on, and this was not when masks were required, but, you know, he was was elderly, thought that it would be smart to wear a mask, and was going for his usual walk through the park when a couple of what he said were kind of teenage kids uh, approached him and kind of pushed him over, told him to go back to his country, told him you can go and eat bats in your country, and just assaulted him. 
Since early 2020, cases of harassment and assault against Asian Americans have surged all across the country. A police investigation tonight into what appears to be a random this attack. This young in woman Brooklyn. who was suspected of smashing an Asian American woman on the head with an umbrella while on a city bus. pours an unknown chemical substance on her. Shows a white woman appearing to tell an Asian American family to go back to where they came from. Brooklyn by two men. They never said a word before they slapped her and lit her clothes on fire. Tonight, she's telling Our producer, James Boo, has been reporting on this throughout the pandemic. Hey, James. Hey, Kathy. Okay. I know this isn't new. I mean, racism, including anti-Asian racism, has always been around, but it didn't really make headlines. And then all of a sudden with COVID-19, we're seeing a lot of it. Yeah. You know, in 2020, over 2,800 hate incidents against Asian Americans or Pacific Islanders were reported to stop AAPI hate. That's a research and advocacy project that's been sounding the alarm on this throughout the pandemic, and it's helped generate a lot of media coverage. And in the first months of 2021, now we've actually seen some of the most violent attacks on Asian Americans, including the killing of an 84-year-old man in San Francisco, Visha Ratanapakti, uh, which happened in January. And we really saw that. I mean, that video was just so, so harrowing. Yeah. But I also know that a majority of these cases that were being reported, they're not violent. So, I mean, it's not to say that it's any less disturbing, but I think it goes to show that there's so many ways that we've seen anti-Asian racism really come to the surface over this past year. Yeah. And there's this range that encompasses everything from stabbing children uh, to just calling someone Corona as a racial slur or just some of the the more usual anti-Asian racial remarks that you might be used to from the past. And oh, by the way, Sojung's colleagues have had similar experiences with anti-Asian racism in hospitals where they work. But most of these incidents, they happen in public venues, like especially places of business. Well, definitely. I mean, as a food writer, I've heard from a lot of folks in the restaurant industry how much this is affecting workers at Asian restaurants. And a business owner I just talked with uh, who has a butcher shop in Chinatown, he says that their employees were getting harassed on the subway, um, even chased after. So they started to take the subway together and try to make sure no one was alone. Yeah. And, you know, one of our favorite restaurants, uh, Xi'an Famous Foods, where we go for noodles, right? People just came up and literally punched the employee in the face. Yeah. Just out of no, not out of nowhere, right? But like completely unprovoked. These are people like doing their job. So like trying to maintain their everyday livelihood. And, you know, what really struck me is that it seems like some people are more afraid of like their Asian American neighbors than perhaps the virus itself? I I don't know. Yeah, well, this pandemic is still far from over, too. So if you can't work from home Mm -hmm. and if you don't get your groceries delivered, if you don't have a lot of options for isolating, then you're more likely to run into these hostile interactions also when you're just trying to get through day-to-day life. Yeah, and that makes me think of what Sojung pointed out. So when she said that there are so many Filipino-American nurses risking their lives in the hospitals first... And then going out to face racist harassment in the public, it's, you know, I mean, it's a lot. So, I mean, this pandemic, definitely not an equalizer. No, I I, I can't believe how many times we've had to say that just over the past year. Yeah. And I mean, it's for a good reason, right? Like, I don't think we can be reminded enough that this pandemic has been most damaging to black and brown communities. And in the same way, Pacific Islanders have been severely overrepresented in COVID cases and deaths on the West Coast. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when we think about the fallout from the pandemic, 
this is all happening because this virus is especially dangerous in communities that have more essential workers, but they have less wealth right, right. or they have greater risk factors for COVID, but they have fewer resources to manage that kind of risk. Like I remember here in New York, when shelter in place first kicked in, there was a 6,900% increase in unemployment applications from Asian Americans in like one cycle. 6,900%? Yeah, there was not a missing zero. That was like an actual number. Yeah, and that was the unemployment applications, right? So mm -hmm. so undocumented people weren't even included in that number. Yeah, so the data needs to be disaggregated to show who's being most deeply impacted and like what we can do about it. But once you're in that vulnerable position, then the experience of one of these hate incidents, this outright racism, it gets stacked on top of all of it. And I want to tell you about one of those experiences that happened here in New York. So I was the point of contact for my mom when she went to the ER. And every 12 hours or so, the attending nurse will call me and give me an update on my mom's situation. That's Charlie Wang. He's a photographer in Queens who grew up in Manhattan Chinatown during the 90s. In March, he was furloughed from his job, and then his mom caught COVID. And, you know, it gets progressively worse and worse. And then I have to go through the grieving process and then calm myself down, call my dad, explain to him in Chinese what's happening, and then what is the percentage of survival. And then another few hours later, I get another call, and I do the same thing over again. Charlie is the youngest member of his family, and he had to check in with the nurse every few hours and then translate to his dad. So it's just a constant roller coaster of emotions. While translating, you have to be the one not seem to be upset. My mother passed in uh, May 14th, and one of my jobs that I had to do for my dad was to print photos for my mom's funeral. And I went to Walgreens to get a print. When I printed, the lady who picked up my photos and put in an envelope, she was complimenting how pretty the, the picture was and that it looks like a painting. You know, I, I just, I wanted to tell her, hey, that's, you know, that's my mom. She died. Uh, this is kind of private. I didn't need to broadcast things like that. My point of view is that this pandemic is affecting everybody. And, you know, there's no point for me to announce another death and just ruin people's day. So I just went on my way quietly, went to the checkout line and just, you know, wait to pay. What happened next was that I saw a guy who was kind of loud coming in. And then the person in front of me, who was uh, six feet away from me, she was also Asian descent. The man saw her and then started to make comments about her being Chinese or being Asian. At the time, I just thought, okay, this guy sounds a little bit off. I should pull out my camera and just keep an eye on him. Everyone here pretty wide when you sold in the market. Okay, so this is from the video that Charlie took with his phone of this guy in Walgreens. At first, it's a little hard to make out, so I'm just going to repeat it. He said, 
every one of your pretty wives is getting sold at the market. If you sell your own women, you'll sell your own life. If you sell your own women, you'll sell your own life. You got the nerve to come to my country. And when he turned to talk to a white employee or a black customer, his tone would completely change. Is there any more registers open, sweetheart? How you doing? I'm good, how are you? So much better. I, I told you my sister died. Oh. My sister died over that COVID that the Chinese brought here, which is pretty up, you know? Yeah, it is. I'm so sorry. Charlie was at the front of the line. The Asian woman in front of him was checking out with the cashier. He just kept recording. A photo of his mom in one hand and phone in the other. Hey, you know what? We're going to war with them. I'm a United States Marine. I'm 33. Thank God it's 34. So I'm going back over there. I can't wait to go back over there. The way he was talking about Asian people made me feel unsafe. So I had to not have my back facing him. So I was standing on a, a sideward stance facing the aisle and had my shoulders pointing towards him. And then I had my camera pointing towards him when I had my arms folded. There's a moment in this video where the man just leers straight towards Charlie. And I, I couldn't believe how composed he was while he was recording this. He stayed totally silent. That was actually something that he had learned from childhood experiences of being bullied for being Asian and figuring out how to navigate that. So when I posted a video, I, I got a lot of flack from Asian Americans saying that I should set something and that I am perpetuating the stereotype of a weak Asian American and that I should have said something, defending myself or be vocal. At the time, I just didn't want to show that I am an aggressor because if I said anything, He'll just say something that will bait me to attack him. For instance, if I say something like, my mom also died from COVID, he'll probably say something like, that's because you're Chinese. You know, you deserve to die. Things like that. What's kind of funny about this is that Charlie does know how to defend himself. He learned Kung Fu when he was a teenager in Chinatown from a Chinese-American transit cop who taught these lessons in private to local Asian kids from the neighborhood. He said that the way Chinese people practice Kung Fu, there's no uh, structure, no belt system that tells you what rank you are or how dangerous you are. Because the stuff that he teach me isn't for show or isn't uh, a point system. He teach me things like eye gouges, throat punches, groin kicks, like end the fight as fast as possible. Just maim the person, because that's when you actually have to use it. But when you do use it, you have to make sure the law's on your side. When you hear about tense confrontations like this, you'll imagine that you'll speak up right away, that you'll show your strength. Charlie could have raised his voice. If this guy had gotten physically violent, he could have fought back. But he was thinking about what the world would choose to see if he did. Because as a person with training, you could actually cause more damage than a normal person. And then in the eye of the law, your hand is considered a weapon. And you don't get into troubles or look for trouble like that. Everything that I did, keeping my mouth shut, record videos of this guy, all these little things are part of the training of 
de-escalation and avoidance of confrontation. Just do not engage and only engage when you are pushed to the point where you can't escape. Remember, Charlie didn't really know anything about this guy. So we kind of took everything he was saying at face value. He said that his sister died of COVID. Charlie's mom had just died from COVID. He said that he was a Marine. Charlie had family members who had come back from Afghanistan with PTSD. So even though this guy was a little off and clearly racist, Charlie wasn't angry at him personally. What made him upset was that no one else in the store said a word. The response I felt from the store, the staffers and things like that, was that they were more sympathetic to him and they were understanding. And it even felt like they needed to shut him up and or to tell him to be a little bit sensitive with the people around him. Their silence was actually really poignant to me. To Charlie, it felt like this guy was just saying what everyone else was thinking. So, you know, more reasons why I should not approach this guy. That's how I felt. Well, if a cop came on the scene, what do you think would have happened? Nothing. That's what I thought. That's the environment that I grew up in. Nothing would happen to him. He's white. And that's it. Charlie went to the cashier and paid for the photograph. And that was why he was there in the first place. My mom was a bright guiding light for me. And when she passed away, it, you know, that light is gone. And I felt like I was lost in the world. And that was the dark place I was in. And within two days of people hearing that my mom passed, they all reached out. I'm talking about people from my past who I hung out with in the park when I was 13, 14. Um, every classmate, every coworker, bosses, everybody. Because they, they know it too. They know that their parents can get it too. And I had one coworker who said, you know, chin up, make your mom proud. It took me out of a dark place because all those little well wishes, they were like little fireflies. And, you know, eventually they combine into a giant light. And, you know, I was out of my dark place because of that. And I was able to, you know, take that with me when I went to get my mom's stuff done because I'm just doing it for my mom. Once Charlie got home, he filed a complaint with Walgreens. They offered a follow-up phone call, but he was still preparing for his mom's funeral. So he didn't pursue the complaint any further. You know, I just told him to look, you know, train your people, be, be more aware. I even told them, like, I don't think they should be, anyone should be fired for this. I wanted them to have some sensitivity training that Asian people, Asian Americans are also suffering from coronavirus. They're not the cause of the virus. And they are also suffering, and now they're suffering in silence. I hear a lot from, from Asian Americans of all backgrounds that they just say, oh, it's a cultural thing. Like, we don't talk about these things. 
what what is your reaction when you hear those that words when someone says oh it's just not our culture right. to talk about it half true sure in on the surface it's a cultural thing not to talk about it but i think what they're really saying is that this is not the culture to talk about it in america as an asian american because they would think that's because you deserve it who is who is they in that sense anyone who's not asian american who thinks that this is a chinese virus or any because you know you prove their point if you you're asian and you're dying from covid you prove their point that asian people tend to get this so when they say it's not an asian culture to talk about it that is a hidden meaning or hidden message saying that this is not the culture we should talk about it in other words there's nothing culturally asian about being silent especially during one of these hate incidents silence is basically a survival tactic silence says less about us than it does about the society we're living in. Well, of course, Charlie has never been silent about this. And now more than ever, I think people like Charlie are speaking out. Yeah, but that's also one of the frustrating things, right? Like it's been over a year since this surge in anti-Asian racism began. And if you're looking at the media, it kind of feels like we're still fighting just to convince people that, Hmm. yes, this is the problem. And yeah, it goes beyond COVID-19. I keep thinking about how many times during this pandemic, people have said that they had never really thought about Asian Americans experiencing racism. I hear that from Asian American people and non-Asian American people. That's Melissa Borja. She's an assistant professor at the University of Michigan, where she runs a database of verified media reports on anti-Asian hate incidents. So in the past few days, a number of people have asked, What has happened in Indiana? What has happened in Michigan? And my team can say, here are the 25 articles that mention anti-Asian racism that relate to women or relate to people in the Midwest. We can give those to the people who are going to organize or respond through public policy to anti-Asian racism. What kind of changes are government officials actually making? I mean, don't get me wrong. It's really a huge (laughs) relief that we now have a president of the United States that, you know, he actually denounces racism. (laughs) Yeah, he doesn't doesn't do the exact opposite. (laughs) Right, right. But now what? I think the Biden administration is doing the right thing by setting the right tone and leading. But other people need to step forward and lead wherever they are. So this work to keep people safe, I mean, it happens where people live. You know, that could mean a lot of things. It could mean intervention trainings to encourage people to stop hate incidents when they see them happening in public. It could mean putting a lot more pressure on schools to stop racist bullying. It could mean demanding resources from the government to better support essential workers and small business owners. It could mean all of these really concrete things in specific communities of Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, too, that have been underserved and dehumanized really for a long time, but but also have the ability to demand what they need. And they have the ability to speak up for themselves. Because Asian American people, in this case, aren't just acting reactively to anti-Asian hate. They are acting proactively to ensure that Asian Americans have power, 
There's been so much energy in Indiana around addressing voter suppression, improving voter access, language access for Asian Americans. The organizing that we're seeing in the current moment can mean that we might see declines in attacks on Asian Americans and at the same time, real positive, tangible benefits. And I think that's what is the most exciting moment is when I'm seeing activists say, no, we don't just want to be safe. <laughs> Although that's a big part of what they want. They want to have a say in how their government is run. You were just listening to self-evident Asian American stories and their coverage of anti-Asian hate crimes during COVID-19. And that does it for today's edition of Making Contact. We'd love to hear from you. How do you think we should fight anti-Asian racism? And how do we keep each other safe during the pandemic? Visit us at radioproject.org. On Instagram, we're Making Contact Radio Project. And on Facebook, we're Making Contact. For a full list of credits, please visit our website. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.